and good morning. For those of you that I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Tim Coyle. I am a retired pastor, and my wife Mary and I moved here to Williamsburg from northern Delaware. Uh, if you know where Newark is, it's just west of Wilmington. I moved here about uh, well, it was four years ago this past March, after making many trips down to Colonial Williamsburg over the preceding about 19 years, oftentimes multiple trips uh, in any given year. And when we would be here over a weekend, we would worship here at Grace Covenant Church. So this was the, the most likely place for us to come and make our church home. And since moving to Williamsburg, we have not been to any other church. And we're very glad to be here and uh, to have the opportunity to, uh, to worship and also to minister. I uh, lead a, a couple of Bible studies. Mary and I uh, host a home group that meets in our home in the quarter path section of Williamsburg. And occasionally I have the opportunity to preach, for which I am very thankful as well. So if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 73. Now you might, re if you have a good memory, you might remember that I preached about this time of year last year, and also preached from Psalm 73. And if you have a really good memory, you might even recall uh, the verse that I preached from, which was verse 25. And this morning, I'll be preaching through, uh, in, through verse 26. Now, the um, beginning with verse 23 through the end of the chapter, this is a conclusion to this psalm, and it is truly one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture of praise to God and a, just a heartfelt response that shows the believer's relationship to God of anywhere that we have in the Scripture. And originally I thought, well, this would be a great passage to preach on. Um, I'll preach on this passage. And several years ago when I started as I looked at this passage, began to work on the first verse, which is verse 23, 24, excuse me, became very evident that this passage is just too rich to cover in one sermon. And I thought, we're not in a rush. We're not going anywhere. Let's just enjoy this passage together and dig into its richness, and see what God has to share with us from it. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. I'm going to be looking at verse 26, as I said. And if you have already looked at your bulletin, you might have thought that somebody made a mistake, because what you see there is a song title. And it might lead you to believe, well, somebody must have put the sermon title in the wrong place and substituted a song title. And then if you start looking for the sermon title elsewhere in the program, in the order of worship, you don't see anything. 
And the reason is because Rock of Ages is actually the sermon title for the message this morning. Now, admittedly, I don't get many points on originality. But this title uh, actually fits this psalm very well. And if you looked ahead at the passage, you might think, well, I don't see any rocks in this verse. Why is this sermon entitled the way that it is? But hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll have the answer to that question. So what I would like to do is this. Uh, I would like to read this uh, closing section of this psalm for our morning scripture reading, have a word of prayer, and then briefly overview the story of Psalm 73, because the more you understand about what happens in this psalm and with the, the psalmist, whose name is Asaph, the more you'll appreciate his conclusion at the end of the psalm. And then with this verse, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at, first of all, what the first line of this verse means, and then how the, first, how the two lines relate to each other, and thirdly, what the second line means. So we're going to look at what the first line means, how the two lines relate to each other, and then what the third line means as well. So, beginning with verse 23, hear God's word. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this morning, not only for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but also for this word, which we so need to reveal truth to us and to guide us throughout this life. And Father, we thank you for this psalm and for the verse that we're going to be look at, looking at this morning. I would pray, Father, that you would speak to each of our hearts, communicate to us the things that we need to hear through your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this psalm is written by a man by the name of Asaph. And Asaph was a very, very significant figure in Israel in the time in which he lived. He lived during the time of David, and even before the temple was built, when worship took place at the tabernacle, 
Asaph, who was of the tribe of Levi and therefore was a Levite, was the one who had the responsibility of leading the worship and praise to God at the tabernacle. And then even after David died and Solomon became king and Solomon built the temple, he was then the worship leader at the temple. And to get an idea of how significant his position was, uh, notice verse 15. Asaph writes, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying is he was in a position where he had the potential of influencing an entire generation. Isn't that amazing? He wasn't the king, but he was regarded as having a very high position so that he could make a statement like this. And so this psalm begins <clears throat> on a very good note. Verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then verse 2 begins with the word but. Whenever you see a but in Scripture, it's like the weatherman who comes on and says, the weather right now is beautiful, but, but, there's a front moving in, and stormy weather is ahead. And in Asaph's life, he reveals to us something that almost happened. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And when the, what Asaph did was he began to look around him, and he looked at those who he knew were evil. And to him it seemed that they were actually doing quite well. They were prospering. They were content. Everything was going their way. And Asaph was thinking to himself, this is not the way things should be. The wicked ones are not the ones who are supposed to prosper. A few weeks ago, Dennis quoted from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spoke of not listening to ourselves, but rather we need to talk to ourselves. Well, this is the mistake that Asaph made. He was listening to himself rather than talking to himself. And he saw all around the wicked doing quite well. And this really got to him, really, really bothered him. And it continues on in the psalm. And then finally, we come down to verse 17, where Asaph entered into the sanctuary of God and it says, then I discerned their end. And there's such an amazing total turnabout in Asaph's outlook that he says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. So what changed? What happened? Did the lives of the wicked change? Not really. What changed was Asaph's perspective. Coming before the Lord, 
God enlightened his thinking so that he could see the real condition of the wicked. It wasn't all flowers and roses. They had difficult times which maybe weren't visible, but God made it clear to him that indeed the wicked do suffer. Not only will they pay for the misdeeds for all eternity, but even in life they're beginning to reap the fruit of the seed that they sow. And then we come to this marvelous conclusion. And as I said, we're going to be looking at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, for anyone who is my age or older, or even a little bit younger, I don't need to explain what the first line means. Simply put, it means that we can't run, jump, or throw as far as we used to be able to do, or as fast as we used to be able to do. It's just the fact of life. In this fallen world, these mortal bodies began to break down. We all remember what it was like when we were young, when we thought that we could do anything. And we didn't see that changing in the foreseeable future. But the years have a way of catching up with you. And you begin to realize how Aesop's experience becomes our experience. And when we read the second part of this first line, not only may my flesh fail, but also may heart, my heart may fail. That's when we're very, very thankful that the word may is there. Not necessarily will our heart fail. It's one thing not to be able to lift as much as we used to be able to do or move as fast as we used to be able to do. But when we talk about the heart failing, that very well can mean game over. <clears throat> and indeed, the heart does change as we age. When we get into uh, strenuous physical activity, the heart is not able to beat faster the way that it used to. We know as well that <clears throat> this fatty substance called plaque begins to harden on the inside of our arteries. And that's why it's called hardening of the arteries or arteriosclerosis. It means that those vessels narrow and there isn't as the ability for as much blood to pass through as there used to be. And those valves on the heart can begin to leak a little. And if you've ever heard of a heart murmur, that's what a heart murmur is. A little bit of blood leaking through the vessels, the valves, when they should close tightly to get better compression when the heart beats. But those valves could become calcified along the edges and they just don't seal off as well as they should. All of these changes take place in, in the heart as we grow older. So that's the meaning of the first line. My flesh and my heart may fail. 
Esau is speaking about this earthly life and the condition that is true of every one of us. But if you look at the second line, it's very interesting because he starts out, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, what exactly is he saying? Do you see the potential of, of a contradiction here? On one hand, my, my flesh and my heart may fail. On the other hand, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. By the way, do you find yourself when you reading when you read the scriptures that when you see something like this, you don't dare question it? You see something that you don't fully understand, because, but because you have such a high regard for God and for his word, you just let it pass by. You might think that you're doing that out of reverence to God, but it's not a good idea. Because what you're doing is you are stunting your ability to learn at a deeper level what God's word is truly saying. Rather, what we need to do when we see something that we're not certain what it means is we need to dig deeper into the Word to determine how this can be resolved, which is what we want to do with this verse this morning. Now, so what does this mean? In light of the first line, what does it mean to say, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever? For instance, does it mean this? That the next time you go to your doctor, you say to him, Doc, I know what my latest EKG reading is. I know what my latest electrocardiogram looks like. But I want you to know, I have a strength for my heart to draw from that medical science knows nothing of. Because God is the strength of my heart. Now, do you know there's a bit of truth to that? Did you know that studies have been done that show that Christians live longer than non-believers? In fact, fairly recently, uh, there were two studies done, one in um, early uh, 2018, and then another in June, and then another one done a little bit later. And there have been other ones mentioned as well. But one was done at the Ohio State University um, that determined that um, Christians, of the two studies they did, one demonstrated that on average, Christians live 9.45 years longer than unbelievers, all other things taken into consideration. And the other study determined that believers live 5.64 years longer than unbelievers. Now, their methodology for their research was this. It was something very, very simple. They looked at 1,500 obituaries for newspapers across the country. And then they compared those in the obituaries that mentioned that they attended church regularly or mentioned the church that they attended 
as opposed to those that made no mention of church at all. They, this is how they made that determination. Now, we might question their methodology because it really doesn't deal with who is genuinely a Christian and who isn't. Um, the same way as you think of the old cliche, standing in your garage doesn't make you an automobile. And we know the same way, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. But what they found does have some significance. And they related this to the fact that people who go to church are more likely to practice a certain lifestyle. They're less likely to be heavy drinkers. They're less likely um, to use drugs. They're less likely to go out carousing at night, and so on and so forth. All of those factors help to contribute to a longer life. But it was very interesting. They also said that um, Christians derive some benefit because they volunteer service in different organizations. And this is, uh, there's been a correlation that's been determined that this helps people live longer as well. But one spokesman from Ohio State said this, there's still a lot of the benefit of religious affiliation that this can't explain. On the other hand, these same statistics were looked at at Azusa Pacific University in California, which is a Christian university. Uh, Azusa is a town located about 20 miles north of Los Angeles. And this was their conclusion. Churchgoers tend to engage in positive behaviors, including high social interaction and lower rates of alcohol and drug abuse. But they also said this, getting at the issue, I think it is not merely activities that cause longevity of life. Activities are the outcome of healthy spiritual relationships to God. So what causes these outcomes? It is the deep peace or the shalom of God. Those practices, prayer, volunteer work, meditation, church attendance, are evidence of a healthy, integrated, and balanced life. That's the way God intended for us to live. Well, surprise, surprise, you live the way God intends us to live, and you live a bit longer. However, this is not what Asaph is saying here. Now, we could go to the other extreme and say this, that what Asaph is saying is, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you're the one who is providing my, the strength of my heart, and it's not working out so well. It's not sufficient to meet my needs. I'm getting older and weaker. And actually, God, the track record of the human race isn't very good. In the entire history of mankind, there are only two people who didn't die, Enoch and Elijah. I don't think your provision is working. Now, once again, do you fear that to have thoughts like that, to entertain questions like that, 
is blasphemy? Do you feel that this is something when you come to God's word you should never do? I found it to be really interesting, especially this summer. Some of the psalms that we've already heard preached from talk about being honest with God, being open with God, expressing our feelings to God, knowing that God is the one who is omniscient, and he's the one that we can go to for answers, which is exactly what Asaph did in this passage. You see, once again, as we seek to know what this word really says, we shouldn't be afraid to ask the hard questions. That's not offensive to God. Because God is the only one that has the answer. And that kind of approach leads not only to a deeper study, but to a resolution of these problems, which only strengthens your faith in the end. And that's exactly what we see is the case with Asaph. So the whole tenor of this psalm makes it very clear that this is not what Asaph was saying. So then what does the second line of this verse mean? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Well, to begin with, there are several things that we need to understand uh, about this verse. Oh, let me back up. One other thing I wanted to mention is that sometimes e there are two ways that we can ask questions of the Bible. We can come to God's word with the attitude that I don't believe this is true, and anything I find that doesn't seem to be consistent is just proof that the Bible is not true and that it contradicts itself. Now, usually when people say that, what they really mean isn't that the Bible, because all you need to do is ask somebody like that, well, can you point to me one example where the Bible contradicts itself? Rarely, rarely will you ever find anybody that can do that. And what they really mean isn't that the Bible contradicts itself, but rather the Bible contradicts me and what I want to do. And so that becomes an ex a convenient excuse not to follow it. But it's interesting that even there are times when people, and then the other attitude is to come to the Bible not understanding how this all fits together, but believing that the Bible has one author, ultimately, who is God himself, and that everything can be resolved with further study. But even with the wrong attitude, sometimes things work out quite well. Um, in the early 20th century, there was a man by the name of Frank Morrison, who I always understood was a lawyer. Uh, he was from Great Britain. Uh, in actually doing preparation for this sermon, I found out somebody did some research and found that he really was not a lawyer. Um, but uh, was a, um, a sales agent and also a freelance writer. And I'll explain to you in a minute why they thought he was a lawyer. But he was so determined that the Bible was wrong and just was so fed up 
with people that bought into this myth of the reality of Christianity that he determined that he himself was going to prove Christianity wrong. So at his own expense, he went to the Holy Land and began doing research, and he realized that Christianity had one significant weak spot, an Achilles heel, you might say. And if you could disprove this one point, and it's very vulnerable, you could totally destroy Christianity. And that one point of vulnerability was the resurrection. Of all the miracles that we see in the Bible, both in terms of its performance and its significance, the resurrection was the most important. And he felt the easiest to disprove. So he went to the Holy Land to do just that. And the more research he did, he found out and concluded at the end that there was only one reasonable, acceptable explanation for the resurrection of Christ. And that was that indeed it was a miracle accomplished by God the Father. And he became a Christian himself. But it didn't stop there. He went on and he wrote a book entitled, Who Moved the Stone? And interestingly enough, I, it, the first edition of Who Moved the Stone came out in 1930, and it has recently been republished. This book keeps getting republished um, about every 10, 15, maybe 20 years or so, and very recently has been republished once again. And the reason that people have believed that Frank Morrison was a lawyer is because a critic who, who wrote on this book uh, and approved of it very, very highly looked at the organization, the approach, the, the logical preciseness of this book and determined this man has to be a lawyer to be able to write this way. I mean, it was just that well done. But it turned out he really wasn't a lawyer. But a book that's worth reading and a book that, that proves that um, when we honestly and openly search God's word to determine what it means, God is faithful in revealing the truth to us. So what does this second line of this verse mean? Well, there are two words that we need to understand a little bit better. And we'll look at the second one first. It's the word heart. Excuse me, it's the word heart. And in, in Hebrew, the word heart has two distinct meanings. One is literal, referring to that organ, that muscle in our chest, that continually beats and pumps blood to every cell of our body. But also, the heart was considered the very seat of the inner man. Now what that means is it's, it's not totally different from what we have in English. When we think of the heart, we know what it is literally. But around Valentine's Day, the term heart takes on a totally different meaning, doesn't it? We think of the heart as the source of the emotions. 
Even though we know that the emotions are seated in the what's called the limbic section of the brain, around Valentine's Day, we think of the emotions as residing in the heart. Now, ladies, don't worry. I don't expect any time in the future that you'll get a box of candy shaped like the limbic portion of the brain or that you'll get a card that has that limbic portion of the brain on it instead of hearts. But we all know, don't we, that there's nothing in the heart with regard to the emotions that we have, especially the emotion of love. But this went even further for Old Testament believers. They believed that the heart was the very seat of the entire inner man. So not just the emotion, but the mind, the will, the personality, everything of the inner immaterial portion of man was rooted in the heart. And so now, in the second line, what Asaph is saying is, yes, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my inner man. He's the one that gives me support when all else around the world is going wrong. And the word that's used here that's as strength does not literally mean strength at all. It's the word rock. So Asaph is saying, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. What do you think of when you think of a rock? Something that is solid, unchangeable, steadfast, that which is entirely suitable as being the foundation for our lives. It means that God is our rock, is our fortress, our strength. And when he says he is our strength, and my portion forever. It doesn't mean just in the next life. It means now. God is our rock for all ages, for this life and for the one to come forever and ever. We could take time and talk about shifting sand and about the parable of Jesus in the New Testament, but essentially they're all saying the same thing. God is the only solid foundation upon which we can build our lives. We can trust him. We can trust his word. And we know that following him will give us the very best possible lives that we could ever hope to live. But that's not all. He goes on to say as well, that God is not only our rock, but our portion forever. This is an interesting term. God is our portion. Think with me, if you will, at Thanksgiving, when the whole family is gathered around the table, and your father, or perhaps your grandfather, has the turkey right in front of him. He stands up about to carve it, and as he's carving, he looks to you and says, 
what part of the turkey would you like? And you get to pick the part that is your favorite, the one that you enjoy the most. That is going to be your portion. Now, in the Old Testament, this term became very, very significant when Israel entered into the Promised Land and God gave to each of the 12 tribes of Israel their portion of the Promised Land, that land that would be theirs. And that came down to every family within each tribe. And that portion of land was to remain within that family and therefore became connected with inheritance and became connected with something that was very, very precious and treasured to each individual. And that's how this, ter this term developed uh, of, being, of God being our portion. And that began with the Levites. A moment ago I said that God gave a portion of the promised land to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not quite correct. There was one tribe that was not allotted a portion of land, and it was the tribe of Levi, because rather than working the land, they were to serve God directly. And in the Old Testament, we read that God said to them, I am your portion in your inheritance. And from there, the idea developed of a portion as being something very precious, very, very valuable. And then amazingly, in the rest of the Old Testament, we read, God is my portion. Can you imagine the God that created this earth and gave everything that lives its life the God who is able to sustain the balance of nature and everything living moment by moment, the God who, who created all the galaxies of the universe, the scriptures say that God is our portion. Remember the old hymn, I am his and he is mine? It's exactly the truth that we see here. It, I just can't wrap my head around this idea that this infinite, eternal God desires to make himself mine. We know we're going to live with him for all eternity. We know that we're going to be perfected and without sin. But to read that God is our portion. He makes himself ours. It's beyond anything that we could possibly hope or, th or think. Now the Westminster Divines understood this concept very, very well. Those are the fellows who wrote the Westminster Standards, including both the longer and shorter catechism. And what is the first question of the shorter catechism? What is the chief end, that is, what is the chief purpose of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God in what? To enjoy him forever. Isn't this a great God that we have? So can you see what Asaph is doing in this verse? 
He starts out by talking about this mortal life and we're, how things are running down, including our own physical bodies. But then he shifts gears. He ups the ante in the second line and talks about our eternal life. Which begins, by the way, not when we die, but when we accept Christ as Savior. And as he's describing this eternal life, he says, in contrast to the physical life, even now, God is my strength and my portion forever. The Apostle Paul understood this same principle when he said that although day by day this body is wearing down, I am being renewed every day in the inner man. And that's exactly what Asaph is saying here. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks and praise for the wonderful God that you are, a God who is beyond our comprehension, and yet loves us to such an extent that we can say that you are our strength, our rock, and our portion, now and forevermore. Bless these truths, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.